Welcome, everyone, to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Josh Sellers, a professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I'm Henry Thompson, a professor of political science at Arizona State University School of Politics and Global Studies. This is an interview show in which we talk with scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil dialogue, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. We're two friends who agree on many things, disagree on many things, yet share a commitment to exploring difficult issues in the spirit of improving liberal education and public discourse. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Keeping It Civil. On this episode, Josh and I speak to Michael Lind, Professor of Practice at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin. We talk about his book, The New Class War, and why the managerial elite pose a threat to American democracy. We also talk about the role of higher education in creating the managerial elite. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So why don't you just start off by telling us about why you see democracy as being under threat in Western democracies? I draw on the pluralist tradition, which holds that it is not enough to have a checks and balances and a balance of power within formal institutions of government only. And it is not enough to have free elections. You have to have a balance of power within society. And in particular, a balance of power among social and economic classes, which exist in all modern democracies as they do in all societies. Much of my book is devoted to the argument that the mass membership institutions like trade unions, religious congregations, and local political party machines, which once offered what John Kenneth Galbraith called countervailing power against the elite, which which I call the uh, overclass, the college-educated minority, which I see as the dominant group in the U.S. and similar democracies. The countervailing power of these working-class institutions has declined dramatically in the last half century. And the result is a consolidation of social power in three realms, political and economic and cultural, among the minority of Americans and of Western Europeans and Canadians who are college educated. And consequently, you have much of the working class of all races in modern democracies is not adequately represented by free elections and purely formal political institutions alone. So in this gap between representation and our political institutions, tends to be exploited and filled by demagogic populists like Donald Trump, Berlusconi, and so on. Now, there's been an attempt by reviewers to assign me to the economic determinist category. You're supposed to explain populism either in terms of economic deprivation or racism and bigotry on part of the white working class. And that misses the point of my book. My book is about power not just about money. So economic deprivation is part of it, but so is exclusion from seeing your culture and values represented in elite media and having influence over public policy. So I see populism as part of a struggle, uh, not simply over money, 
but over power in all areas within modern societies like the United States. And what, uh, in your telling, Michael, facilitated the, the decline in power for the working class? There was this period you describe after 1945, of kind of halcyon period in your telling, where there was, you know, economic bargaining, there were these mass membership parties you talked about. What triggered the shift in the following decades? Well, each of the three mass membership institutions has declined for different reasons. The United States is becoming much more secularized. The number of people who are unaffiliated with any religious group has gone up from nearly zero in 2000 to about 20%, sometimes, according to some polls, 25% of the U.S. population. Uh, Western Europe is a generation or so ahead of us in terms of secularization. So that was kind of a long-term demographic cultural change. Where the elite had a role was in the decline of the political parties, particularly with the replacement of nominating conventions, going back to Martin Van Buren in the 1830s and 40s, with uh, the primary system which was supposed to make American democracy more open and inclusive. But in practice, the primary voters, as political scientists know, tend to be not only more ideologically extreme than general election voters, but they also tend to be more affluent and uh, educated in both parties. Where there is the clearest evidence of an elite campaign to wipe out countervailing power is on the organized labor side because the U.S. business establishment reluctantly went along with collective bargaining during World War II and the early Cold War. But even in the 50s and 60s, businesses were already closing down factories in the Northeast and Midwest and moving them to anti-union states in the South and the Southwest. So in a sense, offshoring to countries like China and Mexico and Vietnam was preceded by a kind of intranational offshoring from the uh, industrial states to the southern and western periphery after World War II. And then the motive was to avoid unionization, to kill the unions, and, and it has succeeded. Private sector union membership has collapsed from about a third of the private civilian workforce in the 1950s to around 6% and falling today. That's lower than it was in Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover's time before the New Deal. So even though there wasn't a single cause for all of this, simply by default, these extra-governmental institutions, and the parties are extra-governmental institutions, that managed to represent, however imperfectly and sometimes in very corrupt ways, the values and interests of members of the working class have declined. And so largely by default, the college-educated minority has much more relative power. Yeah, and you anticipated one of my big questions was, what is the role of political parties in this story? That history you recount about switching to the primary system, that, you know, where the primaries at least were binding and, you know, making the process more democratic. There are a lot of folks in the legal academy and political science, others who say we need to reconstitute the parties and strengthen them, try to shift some of the money that's going to outside groups and such back to the parties themselves. So there's, you know, live debates about all this, but I was wondering in your story, what role do you see the, the current political parties playing in kind of uh, facilitating some of the shifts you promote? 
Well, it's it's kind of a paradox because if you watch TV and and read the newspapers, you would think that partisan the parties are incredibly powerful, right? Everything's aligned, party line votes in, in Congress and so on. Institutionally, the parties have not been this weak in in many ways. They they simply don't exist. They're kind of labels, and they can be purchased by people. Uh, Donald Trump was more or less apparently a Democrat most of his career. And then he thought about taking over Ross Perot's reform party and lost it to Pat Buchanan and then decided, well, I'll try to be a Republican. Michael Bloomberg, another billionaire who ran for president, another New York billionaire for that matter, was a Democrat. And then he was a Republican. Now he's a Democrat again. So these are not what like the strong organized institutional parties were in the 19th century. So I I agree. I think a weak party system is easily captured by wealthy individual plutocrats whether they want to run themselves or or fund causes or politicians who are deferent to them. And the one aspect that all of these mass membership organizations share in common is they are force multipliers for ordinary high school educated working class people who do not have elite connections. They don't have financial influence through contributions. They don't have cultural prestige. All that they have is numbers. And unless the numbers are organized in a hierarchical, disciplined institution of some sort, whether it is the Southern African-American churches of the Civil Rights Revolution or the old AFL-CIO, then they will largely be spectators in a political system where there are deep divides, but they tend to be feuds among the elite. And you see, again, the kind of villains of the story are these managerial elites, which I guess we should say the three of us are all are all part of. Why are the views of the managerial elite in such tension with the preferences and, and not so much the views, maybe it's not the best way to put it, but the kind of preferred policy outcomes. Why do you see the those being in such tension between the managerial elites and, you know, the kind of broader mass public working class? I think it gets back to power because elites very often their individual members are very benevolent and sometimes quite altruistic and, and philanthropic, but they tend to view politics as charity, either charity or technocracy or some combination of the two. So good government in the classic progressive reform sense consists of insulating experts on public policy from ignorant masses and maybe corrupt special interests and having a rational policy. And at the same time, there's a kind of charitable redistribution so those who are fortunate can redistribute resources to those who were unfortunate and it elides the whole question of power because if to my mind if you're a serious small d democrat or a democratic pluralist as i put it in the new class war then you want not simply to redistribute excess money from the winners to the losers according to a system of largesse and philanthropy that the winners have decided on, you want them to share power. You want the outsiders, the working class, to be strong enough that it can extort concessions from the dominant elite. Some 
politicians of previous eras, I'm thinking here of people like Barry Goldwater, a famous Arizonan, they saw organized labor, in particular this type of group that, as you say, enables the masses, low-income people, they saw organized labor as a form of a corrupt special interest. Why do you disagree? Couldn't it be the case that any concentrated special interest has a negative effect on democracy, whether it's of technocratic elites or of the working class? Should we not be opposed to all of these sorts of concentrated special interests? In a word, no. In a modern industrial society, the most important industries are characterized by increasing returns to scale. So in any modern industrial society, for engineering reasons alone, you're not going to get lots of mom and pop aerospace companies and steel mills and, and uh, you know logistical networks and so on. I mean, these are going to be either state-owned monopolies, or they will be large oligopolistic or monopolistic firms. They ought to be regulated. It makes no sense breaking them up because to be efficient, they need to be big. So you're inevitably going to have concentrated corporate power in, a, in an industrial capitalist society. More than half of Americans are employed by corporations with more than 500 employees. Small business is actually fairly small share of even employment, forget ownership, in the United States. So we are still living in the mass society of the mid-20th century. Uh, the corporations, if anything, many areas are getting more and more concentrated over time. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if it results from technological efficiencies of scale. But you do have this problem of countervailing power, which goes back 100 years with labor. That is, if you, like most Americans, work for a private sector firm with more than 500 people, then unless you are a libertarian economist, no one can seriously believe that you have bargaining power. In terms of Goldwater, I'm from uh, Texas, Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Texas, where the undeveloped rural periphery of the industrialized Northeast and Midwest. And so 19th century small business conditions persisted up until the uh, 20th century, but the Sun Belt has now caught up. I think it's nostalgic to think that we can go back to a small producer 19th century type society where most people are small business owners or work for small businesses, that's not going to happen in any technological society. You have to have blocks of organized workers organized somehow. It doesn't have to take the form that it did in the US after World War II. In most democracies, organized labor does collective bargaining at the sectoral level between all of the firms in a sector and all of the uh, workers in a sector or occupation. The U.S. system of enterprise bargaining, where you had to try to unionize one firm or in some cases one warehouse within a big firm, doomed the labor movement partly because it was uh, too difficult to organize each establishment by picketing, you know, one, one establishment after another. But it also spawned corruption, the kind of a feudal craft-based nature of American trade federations meant that it was very easy for the mafia and organized crime and uh, for corrupt union bosses, and there were quite a few, to infiltrate and take over the lower levels 
of this very diffuse federalized trade union system. So I'm not recommending a return to the old system in the U.S., but there are, are there different options for、uh, collective bargaining. But unless the workers pool their power somehow to bargain collectively with employers, then you you end up with a system of private despotism. In the, your job, where you spend most of your waking life, with, that is tempered only by fairly minimal government regulations. I read you,、uh, Michael, is favoring kind of localism and grassroots organizing. So there's this kind of skepticism I, I see that you have of you know the federal bureaucracy. But you had a line in the book where you talk about delegating to rulemaking institutions, and I think you're talking about at the local level to represent various portions of the community, so labor, business. You even mentioned religious groups, and I can see some people, maybe some libertarian type, saying, "Okay, Lind, he opposes federal bureaucracy. He just wants to re- reform bureaucracy at a at a lower level." Is that a is that a fair criticism? Do you think? Well, I think it's a fair description. Institutionalized pluralism. Can take the form of consociationalism. That's where distinct ethnic groups or distinct religious groups actually have a say on government policy that affects them through membership of commissions, for example. And they are represented, you know, by some kind of quota, so that the minority religions or the minority ethnic group in a country is not completely excluded from power. The corporatism, a term that is used inaccurately in the U.S. to refer to corruption of politicians by corporations, as political scientists know, this refers to a system of、uh, tripartism, to、uh, government-brokered bargaining between organized business and organized labor. So, of course, there's bureaucracy. And that is the idea of、uh, countervailing power. American capitalism is and will be dominated by gigantic bureaucratic corporations. We go on and on about little startups, but the successful startups are little baby dinosaurs that grow up into being gigantic dinosaurs. Now, localism. Here, I have a, a, a kind of a different take. I think our the average American city is actually too big, not too small. If you look at a lot of municipal governance, it's not clear there are economies of scale. Obviously, there are when it comes to water and sewage systems, and and you know maybe police and fire departments. But when it comes to you know local school regulations, zoning, things like that, you know there's really no reason for a professional bureaucracy to make decisions for all of the neighborhoods in a city of a few million people. So I think we should actually have more federalism, not only at the city level but in the U.S. The problem with American federalism is we don't have enough layers. We have three: federal, state, and local. But the local itself, local governments are bigger than most kingdoms and some empires in the past. So I'm in favor of more of decentralizing municipal governance to neighborhoods more than we have now. But when it comes to Having countervailing power against national corporations, you have to have national organized、uh, labor. Michael, I'd like to return to the 
elite in your story. One thing that my students often ask me about or complain about is the high levels of student debt and the high cost of tuition at universities these days. And in some ways, they have a good point, right? That a lot of people that graduate from university have a lot of student debt. They may or may not find a job that really matches with their skills. And so, I really am wondering whether you think that everyone who gets a college degree can sort of ascend into this managerial elite that you talk about, or whether there's a lot more stratification within that group than might appear at first glance. The number of managerial professional jobs that allow you to have the classic, I call it overclass, and you could call it upper middle class lifestyle, is much smaller than the number of college diplomas and college graduates. The mm-hmm. Federal Reserve of New York estimated that a third of college graduates are working in jobs for which you only need a high school diploma, if even that. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has the jobs of tomorrow projections for the next 10 years. It updates them periodically. And I followed this for 30 years. For the last 30 years, while the media and the intelligentsia were saying that everyone needs a college degree for the jobs of the future, our own Bureau of Labor Statistics has said that of the top 10 occupations with the most numerical growth, which are dominated by low-wage jobs like restaurant workers and retail workers and home health aides, only one or two, maybe three out of 10 need any education beyond high school and a little on the job Mm -hmm. training. And usually in these different updates from the BLS, it's registered nurses and uh, general store managers, sometimes software, you know, tech specialists, but they're outnumbered by the jobs that require nothing beyond high school. So I think it's a terrible social waste. It's a tragedy. To some degree, it's a kind of a criminal swindle because the universities make money by constantly agitating to expand enrollment and pumping out more BAs and MAs and JDs and PhDs for markets where they're simply saturated. And so I think we're in a higher education bubble. There are red lights going on and the having people who can't repay student loans tells you that they can't repay the student loans because they didn't get the high paying jobs they wanted. I don't think that forgiving the debt, if you, I'm, I'm not against it, but if you simply have rolling waves of debt forgiveness, this creates moral hazard. It simply has young people making the same bad career moves and education decisions they have made before. And it also subsidizes institutions of higher education, which frankly are admitting too many people. Bill Bennett, Reagan's uh, education secretary, after him, you have what is called Bennett's disease. His argument was that federal aid to higher education was in fact the cause of the cost inflation in universities, which has outstripped growth in in enrollment and productivity and so on. With most of the increased tuition money abetted by federal loans going to university administrators, not to uh, faculty. And indeed, if you look at faculty, I'm a professor at the moment at the University of Texas, but nationwide, most students are taught by very poorly paid adjunct lecturers. So even the instructors are not getting the money. So what's the solution to this? We, you know, we talked to a number of guests who have a very different view and see the university as 
kind of necessary driver of you know class mobility or at least the prospect of it and even go beyond that and say university plays a central role in inculcating you know civic values and national values so do you think universities should shrink in size narrow their focus what's the solution Yes, I think they should shrink. The vast majority of my students and students in general, particularly from working class backgrounds, would not go to a university. If they could get a job supporting a one earner family, they would not spend four years getting a BA. And if you want to educate them to be good citizens, do that from between the first grade and the 12th grade. There's an inverse relationship between the growth of BAs and the decline of union power. And uh, I argue this is not a coincidence because since you can no longer improve your, you know, join the broad middle class by doing a blue collar job, largely because the bargaining power of workers through unions and individually has been crushed by the employer lobbies and the government, really the only way for the next generation to make more money is to compete for a fairly small and fixed number of professional and managerial jobs. And those are important jobs. Managerial revolution and managerial society is here to stay. It's permanent, but most of, you can't have all managers and no workers. So to my mind, the whole argument about higher education, to some extent, it's a diversion from the real problem which is workers are paid poorly, not because they're not educated enough for the jobs that they actually do and the jobs that are being created in the U.S., but because the workers have lost the power, which ultimately is collective power, to demand higher wages to perform the same tasks they are doing right now. Michael, the picture you painted of the U.S. labor market in some ways sounds like a very precarious one for the people that you describe as the elite because they're scrambling to try and attain this ever-shrinking proportion of managerial jobs. So although you describe highly educated professionals and managers as belonging to the elite, do you think that they feel that way or are they constantly in a sort of a rat race where they're constantly looking over their shoulder, competing with other people with similar qualifications or even more qualifications to try and stay ahead? That's an excellent question. That's the difference between now and half a century ago, because if you go back to 1960, fewer than 10% of Americans even got a BA, got an undergraduate diploma, forget about advanced degrees. And many of those came from old money families and you were set for life. You know, you went to the prep school and then you, you know, partied your way through an Ivy League school. And then your father bought for you a seat on the stock exchange. The money just came rolling in. So we're much more meritocratic now. But what that means is the elite is insecure. For example, a lot of so-called wokeness and cancellation, this is intra-elite competition where, and particularly younger people who are aspiring for the jobs of the 30 and 40 and 50-somethings above them, and they thought that in those that older generation was actually very well paid and very prestigious and had great careers at a younger age, so you want to rat them out, right? You know, you're a narc. You want to denounce them for being sexist or racist or whatever. 
and get the organization to fire them, and then you can move up. What it's about just competition a, among go ahead, people go ahead. themselves? You know, not just competition of the young against the older, but perhaps competition among young people themselves. Do you think that some of the radicalism on campus might be driven by competition among young people to attain this small and shrinking number of elite jobs? Oh, definitely, definitely. And unfortunately, our cowardly elite institutions enable this kind of mob behavior. So in the media, you read these cases where someone was accepted to an Ivy League university, and then you know one of their peers releases some drunken party video from the 10th grade. They say the N-word or something that a drunken 10th grader might say. And then the noble prestige institution resents the offer. It's a terrible situation for the elite, and it encourages demagogic, opportunistic, amoral populists like Donald Trump. Because if the institutions just show no backbone and they cave in to Twitter mobs and to mass cancellation and they fire you know, their star reporters and, and their editors and so on, because junior staffers complain, you know, then, then the demagogues smell blood in the water, right? I mean, this is a decadent elite. They're weak. They can be overthrown. The story you tell in The New Class War, it's U.S.-focused, but it's really a global story. And so I was wondering if there are countries that you think have negotiated these tensions better than others, and why you think they might have done a better job than we have. Well, in The New Class War, I focus on the U.S., Canada, and Western Europe. And I say I do not deal with Eastern Europe, with Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, uh, which have been in the news, Russia, because they have quite different histories uh, before the 1990s. The really interesting group is the industrial societies of East Asia, like Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, because they don't show these kinds of pathologies, if you think they're pathologies. And this may be because they're, they're simply more culturally homogeneous to the point of being very nativist. You don't have like young Japanese people or young South Koreans tearing down statues and things like that. I think that's interesting. Some political scientists think that the Cold War competition in East Asia had a big effect on creating these developmental states that had much more harmonious relations between labor and management and much more development of heavy industry simply due to the security threats there in East Asia with the competition between the Soviet Union and China and South Korea, Japan, etc. I think that's right. And uh, I would argue that the U.S. itself was a much looser, more liberal version of a developmental state, partly under the pressure of the world wars and of the Cold War, including the early Cold War, when you could not afford the kind of massive labor violence that the U.S. had in the 19th century. The U.S. had more labor violence than any Western country. You just couldn't afford this if you're trying to keep the war production running against uh, the Nazis or, or the Soviets. So it may be that it was the very vacation from history, the very reduction in external threats following the Cold War for a couple of decades, the absence of external pressure that reduced the incentive for cross-class collaboration between labor and capital in the U.S., for, uh, you know, suppressing culture wars, not by excluding 
uh, minorities, but but by having some kind of power sharing arrangements. And it may very well be that the East Asian societies being in a more dangerous neighborhood than the Western Europeans, at least before Russia invaded Ukraine uh, and, and the U.S., they, that some of that external pressure still operates on them in favor of international harmony. I wanted to ask about our legal culture. One of the other aspects of your critique involves our legal culture, and there's a line that, that jumped out at me in the book. You say, it's difficult for a rights-based philosophy to legitimize the nation state as a community that can demand loyalty and sacrifice from its members. And you use examples there of how we don't have compulsory unionization, right? We have First Amendment rights that are made to say, right, I, I should not have to be a part of the union or I should not have to give dues to the union. And as you know, you're a lawyer as well, we should say, those kind of First Amendment arguments have a very receptive audience at the Supreme Court right now and in, in federal courts more generally. So how do we overcome the kind of the, the legal rights-based culture that we have in, in furtherance of the kind of stuff you're promoting? Well, that's an excellent observation. I would respond by saying that it's a mistake, as some people on the right and the left make the same mistake. They trace this hyper-individualistic culture all the way back to 1776. That, that, that's clearly a mistake because we had these consensus-building institutions. We had a draft. We had compulsory closed shop unionism for much of the 20th century. So this is really a late 20th century phenomenon. If you go back to the 60s and you look at Bill Buckley and Goldwater and Reagan on the right, and then on the left at the Students for a Democratic Society, they both shared a kind of libertarianism. They both really didn't like this society of giant corporations and big unions and big government bureaucracies. And so I think from the kind of Goldwater, Reagan, Buckley right, and from the new left, we had, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of a much more libertarian, individualistic political culture than had existed uh, even in the United States, which is quite liberal compared to most societies in the world, and, and particularly continental Europe and East Asia. So I don't think you have to denounce the American Revolution or uh, liberalism as such, but I do think that the pendulum probably needs to swing a little bit away from hyper-individualism. And if you look at the kind of flashpoints in the culture war between the left and the right now, and this would not have been the case in the 1950s and 60s, but it's the, it's the case now. It has to do with the family and the, uh, the nation. That is, do you have duties to your family simply by virtue of being born into it? And do you have duties to your nation by virtue of being born into it or having been adopted by it if you immigrated over the age of discretion? And this would not have been controversial among progressives or New Deal liberals, but it is controversial. If we look at other societies, in particular our most likely geopolitical enemies, we are seeing a kind of revival of communitarianism in Russia, in China, you see this in Turkey as, as well, for example. They're drawing on these pre-modern, often imperial traditions mm -hmm. of solidarity. So Putin is playing up the czarist pass. Xi is rehabilitating Confucian imperial China. Erdogan is rehabilitating the Ottoman Empire. And those are our competitors. And we're not going to make the rules 
of geopolitical competition in the 21st century. We have 4% of the world's population. In PPP terms, we have about 20% of global GDP, and it's shrinking fairly rapidly. We're going to have to function in a world where most other societies are not libertarian individualist societies. We're going to have to defend ourselves, and and to some extent, self-defense requires certain amount of solidarity and, and the tension that exists, and it's a great creative tension in the United States and other liberal democracies, is we want to balance solidarity against individualism. If you're an authoritarian, there's just no balance. It's not a problem. But we want to have a balance. We don't want it tilted all the way to the side of solidarity or all the way to the side of hyper-individualism. It's fascinating. And, you know, some people will hear this and they'll say, well, look at the examples that he gave, right? Russia and Turkey and China. These are, as you noted, kind of authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian regimes. We don't want that here in the United States. I'm not suggesting you're endorsing that, but this harkens back. No, I'm, I'm, what I'm endorsing is Roosevelt and Eisenhower. I was going to say, harkens back to the, Kennedy the New and Deal. Exactly. The, the debates yeah. that we're having then about, you know, how democratic, in fact, should the United States be? Do we need to constitute power in certain places, even if it means undermining to some extent or compromising individual rights. It's just, it's a long-standing challenge, but it's, a, it's, a, it's such a difficult one. Michael, do you see any, um, how do you see contemporary politics? Do you take heart from any particular groups or movements, uh, potentially even elected officials at the national level? There's certainly been a move away from, I would say, what you call neoliberal orthodoxy in the Republican Party, they seem much more to embrace uh, skepticism of free trade and other orthodoxies. Do you see that in a positive light? Or where do you see the most promising movements coming from in contemporary politics? Well, there are green shoots. And I think the promising movements tend to be, for obvious reasons, on the periphery of the older neoliberal consensus center. So there's all kinds of fascinating innovative thought about alt labor Mm -hmm. that is about the use of wage boards at the state level or about new kinds of labor organization and sectoral bargaining that do not have the flaws of our traditional enterprise bargaining system that is broken down with organized labor and this is supported by some heterodox uh, conservatives, including uh, Orrin Cass, mm-hmm. uh, who, who was the, the former issues director for Mitt Romney. But nevertheless, there, there is a constituency there on the right and kind of on the Bernie Sanders left. And you know, there's a certain amount of cross-fertilization of ideas. And at the same time, the neoliberal center, the more intelligent members are being chastened by the failure of the more utopian versions of economic globalization and by the failure of China and Russia to simply accept U.S. hegemony in return for making goods and shipping them to us. Mm -hmm. The thing that most encourages me about America is something that is almost totally unreported in the media, and you would never know it from universities, which is the decline of racism. And we know it's in decline through intermarriage. It's rising rapidly among African-Americans. So I think that the one thing that I'm not worried about 
is the idea that we will balkanize along racial lines. I think that the melting pot, which turned a lot of European diasporas and, and older Anglo-American settlers into kind of a, a single community, bubbling away on a transracial basis now. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did want to ask about race and the role it plays in kind of the story you tell. Because one explanation for the angst and the frustration and the grievances that so many workers have is that there's a kind of racial resentment that exists, at least among some significant segment of the white working class. And so it's hard to kind of disaggregate those views from these other grievances that we can kind of connect with broader economic issues. So I wonder if you could speak to how you understand that relationship or if you think that relationship's overstated. I think it's, it's a plausible but incorrect narrative. Ezra Klein and I published books about around the same time. The New Class War, and I forgot what Ezra's uh, book was. Why We're Polarized, I think. Yeah, so Ezra's explanation was the dominant elite explanation. That is, non-Hispanic whites realized they were shrinking as a share of the population, and they blamed all of their problems on non-whites. And the Republican Party was just a vehicle for white racism and nativism. And I argued that this was really about class and power in a society that's increasingly stratified along educational lines. And Ezra's a brilliant journalist and thinker, but you know, this was the establishment narrative. If you believe political science is a science, then it makes hypotheses which can be falsified. And the establishment hypothesis was falsified in 2018 and in uh, 2020 when the Republican Party as a whole across the U.S., not just Donald Trump, got higher and higher shares of the Hispanic and African-American votes, still a minority of the votes, but definitely a, a substantial trend of growth in minority voting for Republicans, including Hispanics, who supposedly were the Trump and the Trumpists were treating as enemies, the Democrats, the only demographic group they have picked up since Trump was elected, have been uh, non-Hispanic whites. They've lost. And if you look within racial groups, particularly among Hispanic Americans, you see a partisan polarization along educational and class lines that replicates that within the non-Hispanic white population. So if you're a working class Hispanic, you are more likely to be a Republican than if you're a college-educated, you know, Hispanic professional. But that's true for all groups. It's true even for African Americans. So if ever there was a test of a theory about society, I think the Trump years and the Biden years, you know, have, have uh, settled the question. Well, Michael, thank you very much for that and for such a stimulating and interesting conversation today. I think the listeners are really going to love it. We always conclude interviews by asking if there's something that you would recommend to listeners to read or maybe a podcast to listen to or a documentary film to watch on the topics that you're interested in or on the theme of civil discourse discussion. So wondering if you have anything to suggest to our listeners. Well, as I, I say, I'm defending the tradition of democratic pluralism, and I've done my best to revive attention for James Burnham, a, a very seminal thinker in, in my book, The New Class War, and there's kind of a Burnham revival going on. But I would like to see a revival of interest in uh, Robert Nisbet. 
your listeners may take a look at Nisbet. There's been a Burnham revival. There's been a, a Christopher Lash revival after a couple of decades of neglect, another sociologist. But I would have them take a look at Nisbet and his book, The Sociological Tradition. That's great. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. 